Okay, well, let's get started. I think we're on time. We'll pray and then quickly fly through the pillars of Islam. We don't want to spend too much time on it, but I do want you guys to see how closely they tried to make it like Christianity, but it does deviate in quite a few places. So, Okay, let's uh, open in prayer, and then we'll finish the rise of Islam, and then jump into the Middle Ages. Lord, thank you so much for our time of church history. It is a blessing to study. It is a blessing to gather. Help us, Lord, to do your will, to study, to know the truth, and to care about the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at the uh, fall of Rome and the rise of Islam. And uh, we already said that the fall of Rome occurred due to mostly internal issues. It wasn't like Islam conquered the Roman Empire. Islam rises a couple hundred years after Rome fell. And Muhammad considered himself to be a prophet. He had seizures. He had visions. And so then he said, well, this is not a demon possession. This is God speaking. And so he began to write these down. Supposedly an angel, Gabriel, showed up in a cave and told him what to do and how to write. And um, how to write holy scripture according to his new religion. So he began to conquer. And we looked last week at how the Muslim faith spread throughout the world and different ages. Even all the way up through the medieval period. They ruled much of the Middle East and North Africa and even up into Greece up close to Austria. And if finally, after World War I, the Ottoman Empire uh, dissembled, and uh, there are no, we'll say, Muslim ruling nations in Europe right now, unless you consider Turkey part of Europe. So now we're looking at the six articles of faith. This is more apologetics than church history, but since we're covering the rise of Islam, we do need to see at least what they believe. And you'll probably run into some people sooner or later that are either Muslim or know somebody who's Muslim or are confused about what they believe. So these are the six articles of their faith. They believe that God is only one God who is Allah, which means they don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, They believe He's all-powerful but not personal and cannot be known. So it's a God that you have to obey and follow laws and follow rules, and that's the way that you earn salvation You cannot personally know him like we know the scripture teaches us. That you can have a personal relationship with him. They believe in angels. Uh, An existence of angels to them is fundamental. Angel Gabriel is the one who appeared to Muhammad. They do have a scripture. Here's what they consider holy writings. The Torah of Moses. The Psalms of David. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Quran. Now the Gospel of Jesus Christ is not like our Gospel accounts. It's a different set of writings. Only the last one they believe is not corrupted by Jews and Christians, thus stands as their most solid book. Now, this is a brief overview, but you just need to know that to them, the the Quran is the only uncorrupted holy writing. They believe that our Bibles have some truth in them, but that Jews and Christians corrupted that, so you can't trust it. Which is interesting because we have tons of manuscripts to show that our Bible has not been corrupted. And even in occasional places where some scribe wrote the wrong word, we have all these other manuscripts to look at. And the Muslim tradition early on, they just burned everything they didn't agree with as far as uh, either mistakes or different traditions that developed. And kept the one 
that they thought was the best, and then went on with that throughout their history. So those are the first three articles of the uh, Islam. They also believe in prophets. They got have spoken through six great prophets. So they agree with the Bible on Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, but they believe Jesus was only a prophet. They're the ones who said it just looked like he died on the cross. He did not actually die, but they also deny his divinity. And then, of course, the last prophet to speak was Muhammad. So he's the last and the greatest. They also look to the last days. These will be days of resurrection and judgment. Those who obey receive paradise and pleasure. Those who do not will be tormented in hell. And notice the key word, those who obey. It's those who obey that they say will receive paradise. It's all about obedience and following uh, the laws of their religion. How to earn your way. They also talk about fate. Fate is predestined and life is more as mere fatalism as one lives out his fate. The decrees of God, kismet, are a central teaching of Islam. So we talk about predestination, election, God's providence. But we also understand that it's not mere fatalism. It's not as if this is just the way it is. We have to play our part. Nothing we do in life really matters. We're just to obey. We're like robots. That would be more in line with the religion of Islam, not Christianity, not what the Bible teaches. So they have, that was the six articles. They have the five pillars as well. And they believe these are essential for salvation. So they believe in a profession of the faith or creed. And this is often what you hear in the news that terrorists will say, uh, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. So Shiites, a certain sect of Islam, will enforce and evangelize by force at the behest of their imam. Factions among Sunnis or Sunnites prevent their uniting in war. So the Shiites will often be the ones that you hear about um, taking by force. The the Sunnis can't do that by their own beliefs. But here's their profession or creed. That's essentially their summary of their doctrinal statement. We would say uh, our doctrinal statement is Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and those who put their trust in him shall be saved. He, was, he died on the cross and was raised again on the third day. And we can have forgiveness of sins through him. Well, this is like their little short doctrinal statement. They also worship ritually five times they pray per day facing Mecca. And so I never saw this except maybe in movies growing up. But nowadays it seems like if you're traveling, you'll often see Muslims at a, a gas station or some kind of uh, maybe grabbing some fast food. And if it's at the time of prayer, they'll just go around the side or the back, lay their prayer mat down, and start praying towards Mecca, which would be just towards the east here. Almsgiving to, uh, to own people, deeds, and rights of love. So they can give all kinds of things. Uh, the more, like, uh, what, was the, what was the group that controlled a lot of the Middle East and now they've been defeated? The most recent caliphate? Who remembers what they yeah, what would they call it? ISIS? Was it ISIS? Okay. Yeah, so they, they had slaves. They had all kinds of um, sex slaves. They just took slaves when they went in and got people. Uh, other Muslim countries won't do that necessarily today. But they will give of these things that they own and um, help one another. So that's one of the requirements for being saved. Also fasting, you've probably heard of Ramadan. During the month of Ramadan, they fast during the day and they eat at night. So you don't eat anything all day, and then you eat as much as you want at night. 
Some of us already kind of do that sometimes, but they do this to earn their time in paradise into eternity. So remember, they have to say this profession of faith. They, they have to worship, especially with the prayers facing Mecca. They have to give alms. They have to uh, fast in Ramadan during that month. And then they have to make a pilgrimage or a hajj to Mecca once in your lifetime. You've got to go at least once and visit the sacred mosque and kiss the black stone, the Kaaba, and a form of worship. I mean, any time in the history of the world since at least since Christ came, they would have to kiss the stone. Anytime in church history, people would have said, that's pagan. Nowadays, not too many people would classify the Muslim uh, belief as pagan. But in essence, many parts of it are. Uh, note, a sixth six duty is jihad, the holy war. This duty requires one to go to war to spread Islam or defend it against infidels. Those who die in jihad are guaranteed eternal life in paradise. Now, the reason you don't see jihad all the time going on is because many Muslims have... It's sort of like the Jews have to go and sacrifice to the temple. Well, there is no temple. The Muslims began to lose holy wars, and so they began to modify their doctrine. And you do still see this today, but not near as much. Usually it's in smaller groups, terrorist groups. Uh, ISIS tried for a while. Uh, but they do have a straight shot to paradise if you die during jihad, a holy war, which to them is not conquering, um, it's not just defending their land, but it's, it is conquering the land that they believe is theirs to spread the Muslim faith throughout the world. So let's compare that to doctrines taught in the Bible. They believe God's a stern, monotheistic, only true God. All others are idols. The Trinity is hated. A God who is unknowable is described in the Quran as if he can be known. And then Christ, they believe, is only a prophet. You're an infidel if you teach the deity of Christ. You will thus be tortured and damned in hell. They did modify this somewhat, and they, over throughout the history of the church, they have allowed Christians to live in their land and pay a tax, essentially. And other Muslim nations have not allowed that. Salvation. Salvation is by works, by prayer, by fasting, by alms. Uh, when it comes to heaven or heavens, they teach a resurrection and a sensuous paradise where these things abound. Women, food, perfume, non-alcoholic drinks. Men recline on soft couches and receive wine from maidens. They may marry as many maidens as they please. They do believe in hell as a place of torment where unbelievers and sinners will burn in fire. We've already looked at the alms. They're required to give one fourteenth of your income. And then uh, their ethics are mostly involving fasting, prayer, and no alcoholic drinks. Of course, we also know they have some different food laws on meat and such. Uh, a big thing in Islam is polygamy and many concubines. Muhammad had many concubines. After his wife, who was much, much older than him, died, he began to marry very young um, women, virgins, and he had a huge um, harem. Uh, monogamy is increasing, however, but prostitution is also. So even um, in the Muslim religion, you have a huge incidence of prostitution and um, even today pornography in those countries and alcoholism, even though they're not supposed to drink. They believe slavery is practical and approved. Now this isn't going to be every Muslim that you talk to. This is generally what has been believed throughout the centuries according to the Quran. 
Killing of unbelievers is sacred. Those who die in battle go right to the sensual heaven. Men were enthusiastic to lay down their lives for the cause. Church and state, this is, this is key for us to understand because today we separate church and state in modern countries, Christian countries. Church and state are inseparable. There is no religious liberty. Now you'll say, well, I can go to these countries and not be killed. Well, there is a sense where they view you as a visitor or a person working there. But just tell them you're there to evangelize or plant a church. And you'll see how much religious liberty there is. In fact, many missionaries have to go and do some kind of work just to be in the country that's not uh, having to do with Christianity. Now, their own people, can, like in Egypt, you can have churches, but it has to be part of the Coptic Egyptian church that's been there for ages, and you're not supposed to convert from Islam to Christianity. Islam's spread quickly. Here's, here's some reasons. The fact that people were ignorant of the Bible. Corruption of Eastern Christianity. So the Eastern Orthodox Christians, the Eastern Roman Empire, had much corruption in it over time. Not just financial corruption, but doctrinal corruption. And they had a lot of theological disputes. Should we worship this image or not? Should we worship this painting or not? Uh, silly things like that started to happen. And uh, use of military force. They conquered peoples required them to convert. All right, I would ask for questions on Islam, but I don't want to spend too much time on it. Do you have any just burning questions? I'll just summarize this way. It's thought, and I, I agree with this type of thinking, that Islam is a corruption of Christianity and Judaism into some Arabian way of thinking that Muhammad had. So you'll find a lot of things in it, if you were to study it, that sound very similar to the Bible. You know, they recognize the Old Testament. They recognize much of the New Testament. And you'll just find this idea that they misunderstood the Trinity and tried to go back, Muhammad thought, to a more pure religion, which we'll see later in church history happens over and over. The Mormons did the same thing. The Jehovah's Witnesses did the same thing. They said, Christianity has been corrupted theologically through the centuries. We're going to now go back to the original belief. Now, what's the original belief? Well, whatever the leader says, whether it's Muhammad, Joseph Smith, or the people who started the Jehovah's Witnesses. So we always have to be careful of that. We've got to go to Scripture to determine the truth, not to tradition, not to man's way of thinking. All right, now we're in the Middle Ages. Finally, we graduated from the early church. When's the early church? What are our dates for the early church? Up until, I heard 600, that's close. Anybody know? 500. 500, generally it's the cutoff. It's not like somebody stood up in 500 AD and said, excuse me, the early church is ending today. Now we're in the Middle Ages. No, this is historians looking back, especially church historians. And something changed around 500. And one of the major changes is that there's no more Roman Empire. So now things are going to be less centralized for a while. And you're going to see Rome try to gather a lot of that power back that the emperor once did to hold it together. And you're going to see things like the Pope suddenly emerge, this idea of the papacy and Rome getting to speak official doctrine to everyone. And you're going to see a continued effort 
to centralize power in Rome. And the Middle Ages, because it's a thousand years, can be broken down roughly into three parts. And this is secular or church history. So it's important to keep these in mind because now is when we see much of what we call Roman Catholicism develop. It's not in the early church. They will say, if you talk to a Roman Catholic, that it is there, and they will cite the church fathers. The problem is we can cite the church fathers too. Number one, because much of what they say is biblical. But number two, there was no defined Roman Catholic church, no Council of Trent, which doesn't happen until the 1700s. There's no Vatican I, Vatican II, John Paul II. That's all stuff that develops much later in the Roman Catholic Church. In the early church, there's just the church and then heretics. As time goes on, we see power centralized in Rome and Constantinople. So three periods. The early Middle Ages. We often refer to these as the Dark Ages. And they are relatively dark when it comes to some of the doctrines that develop. But it's not as if Christianity died out. It's not as if there's not godly men and godly women living out a true Christian faith. Yeah, maybe their local church is confused on some issues. Depending on where you're at, maybe your, your pastor is really confused. But they still had the gospel. The gospel didn't disappear. If it had disappeared, then when did it come back? A lot of times we think, Oh, the Middle Ages, that's a thousand years. There was no gospel. Forget about it. My church history starts with my grandpa or something. Well, no, it's still there. It's just becoming more hidden and more persecuted and more corrupted. So early Middle Ages, 476. What happened in 476 for my historians? Roman Empire fell. The Western Empire fell. Rome fell. Rome actually fell earlier, but this is when the last reigning emperor said, okay, you can have Rome and you can have what's left of the Roman Empire in the West. So almost to 500 there and then all the way through 1,000. What happened around 1,000 AD is things became much more prosperous. This is the time of the Crusades as well. And so that's the high Middle Ages. Things are going really well for Europe at this time. There's trade with the East and China. There's trade. There's money. There, this is the, the knights who had uh, metal armor, chain mail, then plate mail, jousting tournaments, all of those types of things that some of us enjoy studying and reading about. And then the late Middle Ages. These are not the high point of the Middle Ages. The main reason that secular historians don't consider it the high point is because of the Black Plague. The Black Plague hits in the 1300s and the economy goes in the tank there's some changes to um, farming and crops, and they have a hard time for many years. And the Black Plague just keeps coming back. And theology gets even more corrupted. True doctrine gets more ostracized and put in the corners somewhere. So we're going to briefly go through these in the next few weeks. We'll meet next week, probably finish a little early so the kids can practice their um, kids' choir. And then we'll come back in January and pick up this class. So we'll have a two-week break. What is that? The 26th. Just look in your bulletin. I think it's the 26th and January 2nd. We will not have this class, but we will meet next week on the 19th. All right, let's jump in. The early Middle Ages. Early Middle Ages. The first thing that we want to look at is the power of the papacy reaches new heights. 
And this is under Leo the Great. Now, he didn't go around calling himself the Great. Why is he called the Great? Because, mostly because the Roman Catholics look back and say, Leo was the man. He's the one who wrote that big systematic theology called the Tome. He's the one who really started emphasizing the power of the Pope. Notice he lived in uh, 400 to 461. So a little before our time that we're studying, but it's important because we start to see things change here in the Roman Catholic Church. So Leo becomes the Bishop of Rome in 440. He'd already been involved in the Nestorian dispute. John Cassian had dedicated his refutation of Nestorianism to Leo. We've already looked at Leo a bit when it comes to a couple of councils. Remember, he, he wrote a book to clear up all this issue with Christ's deity. And he tried to have his book heard at this robber's synod, which was the second council of Ephesus. Do y'all remember how that ended? People were just beating everyone up, especially the, the heretics. They wouldn't even let the truth be heard. They just beat them up and took their money. And it's called the robber's synod because it just ended in a big um, fight, a big match of strength. Now in 445, Leo comes into conflict with a man named Dioscorus. Dioscorus is the bishop of Alexandria. This man had followed a great early um, church father named Cyril. And contended, this is what Leo said, that Alexandria should submit to Rome. Just as Mark, who supposedly went to Egypt and founded the church there. The guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Just as Mark would have submitted to Peter, the founder of the church in Rome. So here's how the argument begins. It doesn't begin necessarily with, oh, we're in the line of Peter the Apostle, and he passed it along to the first pope and the second pope and so on. It first started by just saying, okay, there are a lot of cities in Christianity that people go to for help doctrinally, for training. Rome's one, Constantinople's one, Alexandria's one, Antioch is one. When an argument came between Alexandria and Rome, the pope says, look, you should submit to us because Peter was greater than Mark. Your church founder, Mark, submitted to our church founder, Peter. So that's the first argument. Now, the Egyptian Christians of Alexandria, of course, they said, look, there's Rome, there's Alexandria, there's Antioch, Jerusalem, and, and later Constantinople. Why are you singling out Rome as the most important? But Leo said that Rome is primary. It's got the primacy over all others. So if a dispute arises, the church in Rome decides on what the truth is. And he said that's now based on apostolic succession that goes back to Peter. So in 446, he wrote a letter to a man named Anastasius. And he said, the care of the universal church should converge towards Peter's one seat. And nothing anywhere should be separated from its head. So the church in Rome and the bishop of Rome, which is called Papa, Pope, Father, he is the head, and he is the one that all other churches should submit to. So we're starting to see this happen in 446 under Leo. Now remember, Leo had a good argument for the deity of Christ. So it's not as if this guy just shows up and he's all heretical and all this stuff on Mary and all this stuff on the sacraments. No, he's just getting into these debates, and he tends to try to say Rome is primary. Rome has primacy. But he's also teaching the deity of Christ, and we can assume there's much gospel teaching still going on in Rome. Well, he's going to strengthen Rome's position in the West now. He's, he's convinced that the Church of Rome should have 
uh, primacy over all other churches. And he's going to get political support to strengthen that position. So in 445, he obtained a decree from Valentinian III. Now, if you really want to make it official, you go to the emperor and he rules in your favor. So one of the last of the Western Roman Empire, uh, emperors, Valentinian III, declared that Rome is primary. And he said it's based on the succession from Peter. So he just took what Leo said and repeated it into political writing. And he said, if you object, I will threaten you with legal repercussions. You may be accused of treason. As a result, the church in Gaul, or France today, and in the rest of the Roman Empire came under the ultimate authority of the church in Rome. So by that time, remember the empire had been divided. There's east and west. There's somebody ruling over the east in Constantinople. The emperor in the west rules from Rome or Ravenna or somewhere close by. And the people in the west said, yeah, we'll submit to Rome because that's our major city. We love Rome. But the people in the east said, no, we're not going to submit to Rome. So what's the next job for Leo? He's got to raise more strength for Rome in the east. This is the Roman uh, primacy, the, what we would just call today as the papacy. So at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, which we looked at, I think, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Leo's book, the Tome, you know, that's a, a heavy book. It's called a Tome. It was overwhelmingly approved. So everybody loved Leo's book on the deity of Christ and theology there. The Council of Chalcedon produced the following confession. So let's just look at how good this confession was as pertains to the Council of Chalcedon. They said, Following the Holy Fathers, we unanimously teach and confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, composed of a rational soul and body. Remember, there's all these debates. Who is Christ? Is he divine? Is he human? Okay, if he's human, does he actually have a soul and a mind? Or is it just a body filled with the Holy Spirit kind of idea? So this confession, which churches will then recite for a long time and still today, will clear that up. The same truly God and truly man, composed of a rational soul and body, consubstantial with the Father as to his divinity, and consubstantial of the same substance with us as to his humanity. Like us in all things, but sin. He was begotten from the Father before all ages as to his divinity. And in these last days for us and for our salvation was born as to his humanity of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. So they're emphasizing, look, this is for our salvation. All these things have to happen. If, if it didn't happen this way and he's not truly God, then we have no salvation. He has to be fully man, fully God. We confess that one and the same Christ, Lord, and only begotten Son is to be acknowledged in two natures. And remember, this was Leo's language here. Without confusion, without change, without division, or separation. There's all the Latin for you Latin students in parentheses. The uh, distinction between natures was never abolished by their union, but rather the character proper to each of the two natures was preserved as they come together in one person or one hypostasis. So that is the theological term that people use, the hypostatic union. Remember, that's one person, two natures. Christ is one person, two natures, the deity and the humanity. It's called the hypostatic union. So this language comes from Leo. Again, it's not as if Leo said, hey, I'm just going to 
reject everything the Bible says and start the Roman Catholic Church. And I will agree perfectly with the Council of Trent that will meet in the late 1500s to deal with all of the Reformation doctrines. No, he's saying, here's who Christ is. He's, He's solid on a lot of truth. He just begins to push how powerful Rome should be when it comes to deciding these issues. So the Council of Chalcedon, though, they officially ruled and assured that Constantinople has priority among the churches in the Roman Empire. Under Rome, they said, but above Alexandria and Antioch. So we have this power play here now. Rome's number one, uh, Constantinople's number two, and then comes Alexandria and Antioch. I'm sure the people in Alexandria and Antioch did not like that. Now, the Council of Chalcedon also greatly strengthened, though, the influence of the Bishop of Rome and the eastern half of the empire. Here's the guy who brought the theology and the doctrine of Christ. He gave us the language. He wrote this great book. We need to respect him, and we need to respect whoever's in that office as the Bishop of Rome, they said. So now, Leo gets even more involved in politics. We've already talked about this in 452. He shows his political prowess. We looked at how the barbarians were invading the Roman Empire. And they were attacking and they were taking away land that Rome had, their empire uh, shrinking. And in 452, these people from the east come in on horseback. They have bows. They can ride through and just shoot their arrows and destroy cities, much like the Mongols will much later in medieval history. So the Huns come in. Their leader is Attila. He's now invading Italy. So he's conquered a lot of Gaul. He's going to come south into Italy. He's going to take Rome. That's the great prize. The Roman Empire still is in existence. Leo comes out. He says, look, I represent all of Christianity and the Roman Empire. They have a chat by the river, it's thought. And Attila turns around, takes his army, and goes back north and never sacks Rome. So Leo is going to be recognized as a great leader. Look at this guy. He's our pastor. He's also, he goes to the east and teaches them true doctrine on Christianity and Christ. Now he's basically playing the role of emperor, in a sense, talking the Huns down, telling them to turn around. Now there's a lot of legends about this meeting that happened. Some say that an angel suddenly showed up and threatened to kill Attila's army if he did not relent. So that's why he left. People were trying to explain what happened because they didn't have cell phones that you could put on record and just record the conversation. And Leo never said what happened. Alternatively, uh, some have suggested that Attila was so impressed with the Christian bishop that he relented. I mean, maybe the guy was just a real caring, wonderful guy. Or maybe he was a sweet talker and he could talk these barbarians into turning around. It's more likely, though, that Leo was able to convince Attila by offering him with a large amount of gold. The church had become very wealthy by this time, especially the church in Rome. Wealthy people had come into Christianity in the 300s and were and up into the 400s and were giving a lot of money to the church. And so he probably said, here's some gold. And, um, you know, your army's getting a little stretched. You're way out from your homeland. Maybe you should just take this gold and go back home. Whatever happened, Leo became famous. His prestige grew. His political power grew as well. So now we're up to 455. We're just getting started now with the Middle Ages. And uh, Leo is going to try this again, this time with the Vandals. So the Vandals are coming down into Italy. 
They're going to sack Rome, but he was not successful with them. But they did uh, lessen their damage. And some people say, well, maybe that's because Leo tried to talk to them as well. And so they did less damage. They just came into the city. They took what they wanted. Didn't, didn't kill and rape and destroy. Uh, they just took what they wanted and left. He also convinced them not to burn the city. So they, normally an army would come in, they would attack, and they would just burn everything and, or, or take it over and stay there. But the vandals just burned everything normally. And they didn't burn the city of uh, Rome. So here's one historian. He says, These episodes and others like it gave Pope Leo, we can start calling him that, not because he truly was the Pope, but that's what they call him these days. Leo had great authority in the city of Rome. That he was able to do these things was due both to his personal gifts and his political situation of the time when the civil authorities proved incapable of performing their duties. Who steps in? The church leader, Leo. So he was convinced that Jesus had made Peter and his successors the rock on which the church was built and that therefore the bishop of Rome, Peter's direct successor, is the head of the church. Thus, in Leo's writings, one finds all the traditional arguments that would be repeatedly mustered in favor of papal authority. When the Roman church is challenged, they can now say, look at what Leo said way back in the 440s and 450s. And look how he represented all Christianity, even in the political realm. So what can we make of Leo? Well, from his theology of Christ, Christological perspective, he played a very significant role in the adoption of the Chalcedonian Creed. So we ought to be thankful for that. If it wasn't for Leo's language, you know, God would have provided some other means, some other person. But Leo kind of saved the day with getting precise in his theology. But from ecclesiological perspective, ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. From how we look at the church doctrinally, he was a very staunch advocate of Roman superiority. And he said, look, it's right there in Matthew 16. Christ says upon this rock, I will build my church. And Peter means rock, Petra. So that must mean that Christ will build it on Peter. And somehow they argue Peter started the church in Rome. Although it never says that in the Bible. You know that? Or in the Bible. In fact, who, who's the guy who wrote to the Romans? Paul. And he doesn't say, hey, I know Peter's been there and started the church, but uh, I'm just going to come there anyway. There's nothing in the Bible about Peter starting the church in Rome. But that makes sense to them. And maybe, maybe he came right after the church started. Maybe he came after Paul did. It's thought that he died there for sure. But they began to use this argument and point to that passage. I don't think in that passage it means that, that Jesus is going to build his church on Peter. I think he's saying on the confession where Peter says, you know, my, my Lord, my God. And he starts saying the truth about who Christ is. He's the first one in the gospel accounts to really understand the Messiah. And Christ says on that, on the fact that I am the Savior and that I am the Son of God, that I will build my church on. So as Protestants, uh, we would disagree with Leo's interpretation and application of Matthew 16. We would also assert that the idea of apostolic Succession does not rule out the possibility of apostasy. So even, let's just stop for a minute and say, okay, for the sake of argument, let's say, fine, Peter started the church and he went ahead and told people that the next pope is this guy and the next pope, you know, and so on. 
Well, even then, man can make a lot of mistakes in theology. Even then, doctrine can go bad. So a parallel example might be the high priest of Jesus' day could say, well, I go back all the way to Aaron. Was there truth to that? Sure. Does that mean that he taught rightly? Could he say, you know, look, I'm the most godly man in all Israel. I'm the high priest. Aaron was my ancestor. He had the office. He had the title. But he was corrupt. One of the most corrupt of his day. In fact, most of the priests at Jesus' time were Sadducees. They didn't even believe in most of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Finally, it is important to remember that orthodoxy, this is a little o, right doctrinal thinking. Ortho means right. Doxy is, is doctrine. Orthodoxy is evaluated through comparison to the Scripture, not through a supposed line of succession. You know, if, if Chris comes to me, and I'll pick on Chris because I, you know, I know he won't take offense. If he says, look, I'm the new pope, I'll say, where's that in the Bible? It doesn't even mention Chris, and it certainly doesn't mention pope. And he says, well, somebody told me. Where's that in the Bible? You know, Chris could be the most wonderful guy in the world. He, he could convince Attila the Hun to go back to his homeland. But if Chris doesn't have a biblical argument, it doesn't matter. Right? I'd say, Chris, quit wasting my time. Let's talk about something else. All right, now let's go to the Eastern Empire. So Rome and the West is gone. The city is taken over by barbarians who rule it as a kingdom called the Kingdom of Italy. All the Western empires broke up into little kingdoms, which will eventually become France and Germany, England, things like that, Spain. Let's jump now to the East, and let's see what happens in the East. In the East, the guy comes along. We've already heard the name, Justinian the Great. He had the Interesting wife, Theodora, who told him what to do, told him what to believe often. He reigned, and he's, he's known as the Great. Does that mean he called himself the Great? No. He did a lot of great things, and so people look back and say, not just Justinian, there's lots of Justinian, Justinian the Great. There's a famous mosaic, probably pretty close to what he looked like. Um, by this time, uh, at least mosaics, where they would put the tile on the wall or the floor, uh, they're trying to capture a more accurate look. So in his early reign, now he's the emperor in the east. The west is gone. It's full of barbarians. The Muslims have not risen up yet. Uh, that's going to happen much later. So Justinian had been very close with his uncle, Justin. This is how awesome their names are, right? Justin, Justinian, Valentinian, Constantine, Constantinius, Constantius. Right, they're struggling with names, I think. Right? No, your ancestor's famous. You want to be named after him. So he's very close to his uncle. And his uncle was the emperor. So he's going to become emperor. In 525, he marries Theodora. She was not part of the aristocratic class. And thus, Justinian received criticism. There's a lot of... Uh, it's more than rumors. There's a lot of things in the historical record. She was either some kind of eastern dancer... And some even go so far as to say she was a, a high, um, an escort, um, a wealthy, an escort for the wealthy, a prostitute for the wealthy. Um, I'm not sure about that. She definitely was some kind of dancer in places that the wealthy did not go unless they wanted certain things. So um, there's something about her that people did not like uh, about her past. Uh, she would be a major influence in his reign until she died in 548. In fact, many Modern-day feminists look to her as one of the early feminist examples 
kind of tells her husband what to do in a lot of situations. So Justinian becomes the emperor 527. Early on, he wants to fix a lot of problems that he sees in the Roman Empire. And they do consider themselves Roman. Now today, we look back, that confuses people to say they're Roman. The Western people were Roman. So we call them the Byzantines or the Byzantine Empire. Byzantine, however you want to say it. But they considered themselves Romans. They just were very Greek, and they were not speaking Latin, but Greek. But they were Greek in their culture as well. So he said, I'm going to revise the Roman law. There's a lot of problems. And uh, he, he hired or asked a guy named uh, Trebonian to help him. The result of that is the Corpus Juris Civilis, which made its way to Italy and from there into Europe, where it provided the basis for much European law. It is still influential today. Most of European law today is based on this Roman law that Justinian developed. Now, he took what he already knew and what was already in practice and developed it more clearly. It's different than our law. Our law here in America comes from English common law. So if you want to study more on that, uh, you can. But there's a difference in, say, the idea of speeding in France versus the idea of speeding in America. It's looked at differently from the culture. And little laws like that, people look at them differently because the basis for the law is different. But even today, people still study the Roman law. It was a big, huge revision, and it's still studied today. And it's, it, it, causes, it is the foundation for most beginning law students. So Justinian's considered a saint by the Eastern Orthodox Church. He's not always very popular with his contemporaries, though. And um, Procopius really did not like him and wrote a lot about Justinian. That was not so good, including this idea that his wife may have been a prostitute. At one point, some businessman in Constantinople became dissatisfied with Justinian and he began to stage riot. So if you're not happy with the guy, let's get a party of people together. Let's stage a riot in the city. They're called the Nika riots. Justinian responded. He said, fine, we'll have 30,000 of them killed, including the man who would have replaced him if he had been deposed. Isn't that interesting? But then again, you know, where are you going to put 30,000 prisoners? It's not like they had a prison system today where you, you know, three mills in a cot for the rest of your life. So we can't, we can't know what exactly happened in Justinian's time. But these people were rioting. They were destroying things. They were killing people in the city. So then he gets things settled in Constantinople. He gets the law revised. Now it's time to what? Go get some of that land back in the West. I mean, it's been Roman for over a thousand years in the West. So they're going to go and conquer much of that. So he says, I represent the Christian world at this time. And, and many in the West under the barbarian kings still look to Constantinople as the true Christian emperor. So, for example, monks would do their beautiful artwork and the Bibles they were making. And they would travel from the West all the way to Constantinople to give a gift to the emperor. So they still respected him. So Justinian felt that he, it was his divine obligation to restore the parts of the Roman Empire that had been lost. Not just a good idea for his empire or money, but he says, it's my job to go get it back. And this idea will carry over into the Crusades much later as well. Now, he didn't want to go personally. He didn't want to go on campaigns. He wasn't much of an army general. So his famous general, Belisarius, conquered large sections of territory. 
So he sent out Belisarius. I think that's also the name of Alexander the Great's horse, Belisarius, which that'd be interesting to be named after a horse. But uh, hey, he, he, there's two famous Belisariuses in history. One a horse, one a man. Belisarius was a great general. He took a lot of land back. In 532, Justinian negotiated peace on the east with the Sassanids, and he's able to concentrate now on getting that land back in the west. I think I have a map coming up, yeah. From 533 to 34, Belisarius and his forces take North Africa back from the Vandals. Uh, Though long-term peace and stability would not really be established there until 548, it's estimated that military endeavor cost about 100,000 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold in those days. It's a lot of gold today. This is going to be a problem. Justinian is trying to take back these lands. They're ruled by barbarians who are um, Aryan in their theology. So he sees it as sort of saving them from bad leaders. And um, 100,000 pounds. Okay, next, the armies of Justinian fought with the Ostrogoths for control of Italy. Eventually, Belisarius reached the Ostrogoth capital city of Ravenna, which is where the emperor used to be, in northeastern Italy. The Ostrogoths said, look, we'll make you the new emperor of the Western Roman Empire, Belisarius. I mean, come on. Your emperor sitting back there in Constantinople, and he's not doing anything. Why don't you step up? You become the new emperor in the West. Belisarius said, sure. And then once he had Rome, he said, okay, that's Justinian's. I'm not going to be emperor in the West. So he was loyal in that sense. So Orange is Justinian when he started. He sends out his armies, lots of money. He's got a lot of wealth. And they go and reconquer some of the former Roman Empire. He still didn't get back the kingdom of the Visigoths, where modern-day Spain is. He still didn't get the Frankish kingdom. They're too far north and too difficult. He's not even thinking about going up to where the Anglo-Saxons are. So in 540, something comes up. The plague. And it affects the empire. It affects the fighting. They've got to stop. Then new hostilities broke out in the east. So the army's off in the west and your enemies are now in the east. So Belisarius has to return and fight against the eastern Sassanids. Eventually restores peace there. Okay, now he's got to go back to Italy because many of the Ostrogoths there are causing problems. Then he's just fighting all over with these Byzantine armies. 300,000 pounds of gold just for that last campaign there on the bottom point. What's going to happen with all this gold going out? Though Justinian's efforts were successful during his lifetime, they were short-lived. Within 150 years, all of the land he took back would be lost. It's going to be lost. You know who it's going to be lost to? I don't have it in this slide, but we've already talked about it. The Muslims. The Muslims. Ironically, some historians believe that due to the expense of his military efforts, all the money he sent out, he may have actually made the Eastern Roman Empire more susceptible to attack. Thus, his attempts to expand the empire may have actually contributed to its decline. Justinian's the height of the Eastern Roman Empire. It's going to last another 900 years, but it's going to be very weak. And the, the Muslim countries or caliphates are just going to continue to pick off certain parts of the Eastern Empire. And some say that's because Justinian broke the Roman Empire in the East by spending all this money. So there he is there. He's got all the important church people. Um, he's, it's showing that, look, Justinian, he's the saint with the crown and the halo and then all the, the bishops and stuff are behind him. And then he's got his soldiers 
over. And that's, that's pretty much what their, their shields look like, at least their decorative shields. They had the uh, Cairo symbol on there. He was trying to be the, the true Christian emperor. This is a famous mosaic. I forget where it's at. It may actually be in Ravenna and an old church uh, basilica there. And they, they did it as a sort of a gift. Look, we love you so much in the east. We're going to build a church or at least a church floor with your mosaic on there. It's ought to be accurate. So let's talk about theology, right? Enough, if you're not nerdy into history like me, you probably say, why are we studying all this stuff about Justinian and Belisarius and the wars and money? Well, because at this time, whoever's ruling politically has a huge influence in what the church is supposed to believe. So remember, he had this issue with a monophysite controversy, and he called a council. And he didn't, he didn't like the controversy because no emperor likes to see his subjects fighting, especially as different churches are fighting one another and beating each other up in the streets. So he said, look, Chalcedon, the council of Chalcedon's already ruled on this subject. Let's maintain what they said. And he knew that that would make the church in Rome like him because that's what they believed. And at the same time, though, he didn't want to push away the monophysites, the people who said Christ was only one nature, the heretics, basically, because they were very popular in the East. So he wants to keep Rome happy in the West and all those Christians. And he wants to keep these more Nestorian uh, thinking Christians in the East happy. Can't we just all get along kind of idea, right? right? Can't we just all get along? We've got the heretics over here, people who believe the truth over here. Can't we just all be one church? And in the end, he said, uh, basically, he gave up. He couldn't satisfy either camp. So there was a second council of Constantinople, 553. We looked at this last week. The monophysite position was condemned as heretical. These are the guys who said, Christ is only one nature. He can't be human and divine. He's only one. And the Western church said that um, that condemnation is just, but the condemnation... The, of the three chapters, went contrary to Calcin. I remember the three chapters, I believe, is what uh, Justinian wrote on this issue. Justinian, for his part, actively suppressed those heretical groups, gave special legal advantages to the Christian clergy and to monks. So already seeing the government here, uh, and it's been going on in the Roman Empire for a while, they're giving advantages to being a Christian. This is why nominal Christian survives all the way up to modern times. Up until recent presidential and, and many political organizations and um, administrations, if you were a Christian, then you got to be some, somewhat closer. You got a good job sometimes in the political government. And that's fine if you're talking about <clears throat> the person's ability to serve in that position. And they just happen to be a Christian as well. The problem you're seeing here and even today is that people say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I go to so-and-so heretical church, second heretical church down the road. I'm a Christian. And they get, oh, okay, well, we don't have to worry about you. That's why when they do a study of politicians today, it's like 99% are Christian in Washington. Now, I think there's some Christians in Washington, no doubt. 99%? I'm not so sure about that, but if you check, all you got to do is check the box on, I know I'm getting off subject, but it applies. All you got to do is check the box on your religion. We went to this presidential museum in, I think it's in Tyler, Texas, and you go through there and you see a picture of the president, 
and the time that they were president, and it always has the religion under the picture. Adam was like a Christian Unitarian. Well, Unitarian doesn't even believe in the Trinity, right? They just think there's one God, not three persons. And it just, you know, that was in the early 1800s. And then it was all the way down until the recent president at that time, which I won't say who it was, and it just said, um, it was like none, or it didn't say anything of what he believed, which at the time he was saying he was a Christian. But it's interesting how all the presidents of the United States have claimed to be Christian, but some have actually had heretical beliefs. Why? Because if you want to get elected in America, you at least need to acknowledge Christianity, even if it's on just paper, just a checkbox. Well, this goes back to the early Roman Empire. Once the government becomes Christian, you're going to do better if you say you're a Christian. Whether you are or not, doesn't matter so much. Other religious groups, including the pagan teachings of the old Roman Empire, were vigorously opposed. So they began to wipe out any sense of paganism that was left. But did they? Or did they just absorb some of it into their belief system? All right, let's do one more point here. So we looked at Leo expanding the role of, of what they will later be called the Pope in the West. Then we jumped to the East and we saw what's happening over there for a time. Now let's go back to another so-called early Pope, Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great, 540 to 604. Gregory was just a boy when the armies of Justinian recaptured Rome. He's the son of a Christian, uh, Christian parents. He excelled in education. And at some point he becomes involved in politics. He serves as the prefect of the city. So that's like the mayor of the city of Rome. Uh, not necessarily elected like mayors are today, but that kind of idea. He has control of the police force in Rome. When his father died, Gregory converted the family home into a monastery. So monasteries are rolling along at this point. We'll have a later class, probably next month, where we look back at how monasteries develop, why people wanted to go and be a monk or a nun, and we might even talk about why that's so popular today, even still. So Gregory said, okay, my father's gone. I have all this property I've inherited. I'll give it up to the church and form a monastery. Gregory himself entered into it as a monk. That means he denied... Um, a lot of the normal things of life, including getting married, uh, certain types of food, money, business, wealth, things like that. He was eventually ordained as a deacon by the Pope, Pelagius II. That's an awful name, you know, Pelagius. That's an early heretic. How do you end up with that name a couple of centuries after the heretic? Anyway, uh, Pelagius II sought Gregory's help in resolving disputes in northern Italy related to the three chapters controversy. So there's still this debate on the monophysite issue and little pockets here and there. And the, the Pope at the time says, Hey, Gregory, can you come help resolve this? I know you're a knowledgeable guy. So then this Pope, Pelagius II, um, wants him to be an ambassador from the Church of Rome to go to Constantinople in the east. Part of Gregory's mission was to obtain military aid from the emperor against the Lombards. So the Lombards are coming down from the area of Germany. They're coming into Italy, northern Italy. And uh, Rome needs help. Rome needs help. So go, Gregory, to the east and try to convince them to send some help, some military help, an army. But conflicts to the east made it impossible for the emperor to send military forces. So Gregory comes back to Rome, and Pelagius dies in 590 and says, Look, you, they say you are the new pope, Gregory. 
So Gregory's going to do great things. That's why they call him Gregory the Great. Um, not everything he did was that great, but we'll see. So he becomes the Bishop of Rome, and he, he's there for 14 years. And he begins um, in 590. And at that time, the Roman church's prominence had been in decline. So Leo made this strong argument. He said, everybody should look to the Bishop of Rome. Everybody should look to the Pope in Rome. And then the next guy, he doesn't have time for that. You know, he's got other things to worry about. But by the time Gregory comes along, Gregory's going to change that. In the beginning, he said, I have no ambition to be the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. But instead, he wants to just go away, quietly contemplate the monastic life. He's a monk. He doesn't want to be in the limelight. But he's well known. And uh, his influence helped, again, to assert the primacy of the Roman church. He did much to improve the condition of Rome. The people in Rome like him. The people in Italy like him. Now, this was partly due to the successful missionary endeavors, primarily to the barbarian tribes that took place under his leadership. So one of the reasons he's popular isn't a bad reason. He sent out monks into these barbarian places that did not have the gospel. And how much true gospel did they take? Well, there must have been something there because there are believers in those kingdoms in the next few decades and centuries. The most famous missionary he sent was Augustine, not Augustine of Hippo, but Augustine of Canterbury, Canterbury, England, that is. Um, he went there, Augustine of Canterbury, he's, he's known for where he ended up, not where he's from. He went there to the Angles and the Saxons in modern-day England. England. So most, most of us are some kind of Anglo-Saxon descent, many of us anyway. And uh, the first Christian missionary there was Augustine of Canterbury. From England, additional missionaries brought Christianity to northern Germany and the Netherlands. This is important because later, these countries will be where the Reformation occurs, not down in Rome and Italy. Ireland had already become Christian by this time, thanks largely to the work of Patrick. So just a brief note on Patrick. For St. Patrick's Day, the Irish celebrate that, mostly with just drinking and partying. But Patrick was an early missionary. He was a slave in um, Ireland, even though he was born in Britain. And then eventually he wants to go back when he gets... Uh, released as a slave, he wants to go back and take the gospel to them. He did not use a three-leaf clover, four-leaf clover, anything like that. Um, he took the true gospel to them. So he was taken as a slave. It just talks about here in this slide how he was 14 when he was taken. Patrick was. He eventually escaped from Ireland, reunited with his family, later wanted to return there. I better stop there. So we're going to come back to Gregory. Gregory takes this argument for Rome being primary even greater heights. So come back next week. We'll meet on the 19th. We will not have class on the 26th. We will not have class on the 2nd. And then we'll pick back up. Lord, we pray this morning for our time of worship. Help us to focus on you, Lord. This is our time to think about Jesus Christ, our Savior, our salvation. It's time to hear from the Word. Thank you for all these classes that equip us this morning, even down to the young children, as they hear about the Bible, the Gospel, and Jesus. I pray for this whole church in Jesus' name. Amen.